Hey folks, Jason from the future here. When I warn you, you might want to skip ahead 35 seconds or so. Just be aware, it if I don't explicitly say it in the episode, a slang term, not necessarily a four-letter word, but a slang term is used for a lady's body part. So when I warn you to skip ahead, you may want to do that. Well, parks up a beer or a cold libation, let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips, some popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and the push, you know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds. With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast, everybody. Special show for you today. Today's a holiday. It's National Puzzle Day here in the United States. So in addition to a session recap of the Talisman Fantasy RPG, I have a special puzzle-related unboxing to do for you. You might have seen the special clip art for today's episode. I also have another segment in the controversial series AD&D Gotcha Monsters. We're going to talk a little bit about what I've been watching because, well, I can't help myself. And then we're going to open up the mailbag for a bunch of new calls, including a special announcement exclusive to this podcast from Colin Green of the Spike Pit podcast and YouTube channel. So let's get into it. So I have to be honest with you here, we have not rolled dice yet in the Talisman Fantasy RPG, at least not rolled dice in anger. I, we did roll them to generate starting funds, <laughs> but that's it. So this is using the Talisman Adventures fantasy role-playing game that came out a year two years ago, maybe. And so far, it looks like a really interesting system, and I think next session we're actually going to, well, we, we will actually start adventuring next session but I will get you up to speed. The Game Master is Eric Salsweedle, the Omega 3D Chicken Coop podcast. I am playing Sonia, who is a bard, and actually, she, she's called a, it's called a minstrel in this game. And the other player on his podcast is Joe Richter, and he is playing a, he's playing um, Moshi, who's a troll, who's a scout. We are, this is not set in the talisman world that's in the role playing book, but Eric came up with his own world. So, and he came up with this really neat map. Joe's talked about the map a little bit on his podcast. But to give you a little background of the world we're in, we're out in the frontier. We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's small vill villages along the river. There's like logging community, things like that, mining communities. Um, there, there are other races, obviously, with Joe being a troll, but it's a human-centric world for the most part. Um, but we we're part of the Duchy of Karmadar, and the Duchy of Karmadar is part of the Sapphire Kingdom. It's a frontier t 
territory of the Sapphire Kingdom, which is, of course, the Kingdom of Everlasting Brilliance, but you guys knew that. It's ruled by the Sapphire Queen of the Blue Eagle Banner, and but we're part of the Duchy. And the Duchy is ruled by Duke Borim the Grave, and it was his grandfather that failed in securing these lands and establishing trade routes to the East. And I'll talk about the East here in a moment. But... So his family just has a tenuous hold on their seat at the duchy after several years of struggles with barbarians and other dangers. And so they're pretty de- in a desperate spot. The other famous name that goes with the duchy, of course, is the most famous playwright of the Sapphire Kingdom, who's very important to so- to, to Sonia, my character. And that's Water Walter von Hoffenstein, a.k.a. Water VH, or the Hoff. And of course, you know, played as played by David Hasselhoff. He's done such amazing plays as Jason Goes to the Well, Joe Meets a Girl, and Eric is Awesome. So we're very happy to that Sonia may per- perform some of the Hoff's works at some point. We'll see. But where we're at, we're on the edge of the duchy, and to the east of us is the Lost Kingdom of Rhone. And this is one of the failures of the duchy is they, they never actually established trade further east. And part of that is because of this lost kingdom. And not much, a whole lot is known about the lost kingdom, but the facts that are known to everyone is it's dangerous there, especially at night. It's said that lost souls of the kingdom roam aimlessly, cursed by their once noble king, Ryan Twenty-Third, king of Rhone, who turned into a necromancy lord. And he had decided he had kind of gone crazy what what happened his family got sick and he even with his powerful necromancy couldn't save him and then he kind of went mad after that and he attacked both the east and the west and he raised up armies of the undead and he had decided he was gonna take over the the area and attack death itself but a few years into the war he just stopped and gave up and no one really knows why he stopped he turned his brother into a death knight which is kind of badass, um, and now Goblin, but that was, uh, I believe, a few centuries ago, and so now Goblin clans have taken up residence there, and they're, you know, obviously evil spirits, things like that in that area. Also, ogres, hill giants, other creatures have been known to wander the lands, so you have to be careful when you're traveling in that area. But, of course, our quest is going to take us into the Lost Kingdom at some point. Initially, though, we're not going into the Lost Kingdom of Rhone, We've been tasked by an old wizard on the who lives on the edge of town. His name is Cormos, and he's fairly new a newcomer to the town we live in. He's only been there a few years, and he's a retired wizard of the Arcanum. And the Arcanum in this world is like wizard society, and you have to be a member of the Arcanum to to practice arcane magic. If they catch you practicing arcane magic, otherwise, the, their penalties are are worse. Now, my character, the minstrel, does have nature magic because she can cast, but that doesn't fall under the providence of the Arcanum. Um, anyway, the Cormos had bought this old watchtower out, outside the town from the Duke, and his goal before he dies is to write a grand history of the Lost Kingdom of Rhone. And his band servants recently passed away, and he's all alone there. And what he's done is he's hired our two characters to go out and at our characters, and we'll see who else goes with them, ends up going with them. But he, he initially has hired our two characters to go out and search for these documents that he heard are in a tower to the north, which is kind of like 
giant territory. So we're going to try to sneak our way up there and explore, do a kind of a hex crawl, exploring hexes, looking for this tower and finding these lost documents to bring back to him. Uh, other important characters, I guess we both have mentors. His mentor is, Moshi's mentor is a, the town trapper known as Whistler, who looks like Chris Christopherson from the Blade movies, who found Moshi as a babe in the river and raised him as a son. And then Sonia's mentor is Brando, who is a traveling minstrel, minstrel who came north. He traveled north up the river to enlighten the savages. Um, he made it as far as Red Banks for losing his leg to infection. He's been here for several years, embarrassed to travel back to civilization. And and now that they've kind of got us trained up, they're kind of letting us go off and do our own thing as we we learn about things in the world. So... We like I say we haven't actually engaged in the game system yet. It's all been role playing, which is great. It's been a lot of fun. Eric's a great game master. Anybody that's played with him, he ran a very successful Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells a few years ago. Anybody got to play in that game knows how fun of a game master he is. He, he's really energetic, and he he's very good at doing things on the fly, making up as he goes. So we're having a lot of fun in that game. And hopefully in a few weeks, I'll have another recap where we actually use the mechanics of the system, and I'll get to talk about that. But that's what I have for my Talisman recap. Special unboxing. So actually, I unboxed this the other day, but I'll tell you what I got. This is from a company called Messed Up Puzzles. As you... As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's National Puzzle Day here in the U.S. And Messed Up Puzzles does horror movie-related jigsaw puzzles, exploitation movie-related, things like that. So I've got four puzzles here that I will share with you. As you know, I'm a patron and a fan of Joe Bob Briggs's The Lost Drive-In that's on Shudder, where he shows various movies. And Darcy the Mail Girl is his co-host in that. So the first puzzle we have is of Darcy, a thousand pieces of certified male girl. And so it's got Darcy and she's kind of in a pose like you would see like like pinup art on like the nose of a fighter jet in World War II, that kind of thing. And we've got things from the lost drive in. She's holding a piece of mail. It's got cactus behind her and the iguanas there with her. So very cool. Very nice. The next one I have here is from the New York Ripper, which I've talked about in a recent episode. This is a thousand pieces of good, efficient butchery. Oh, let me play that clip for you. I didn't play that during the... There, there's a scene in the beginning of the show, and I'm going to apologize. It's a little bit crass. So if you're sensitive or you have kids in the car, you're going to want to bleep out the clip when I play it. But let me set it up. This is a scene between the coroner and the lead detective. And they had just brought in the body of a poor young lady who's a victim of the slasher. And or the New York Ripper, I should say. And so to the visuals here, the coroner has a Walkman on. He's listening to music. So when you hear the humming, that's the coroner humming. And then the lead officer is going to engage him and ask him what he found. So if you don't want to hear a certain part of a woman's anatomy described, you may want to skip ahead the next, say, 35 seconds. Barry. Barry. What? So what's the good news? He used a blade. He stuck it up her joy trail. 
and slit her wide open. He could have done a slightly better job if he'd had more time. But overall, it was uh, good, efficient butchery. <coughs> Sex? Strange. No trace. Anyhow, so the 1,000 pieces of good, efficient butchery is referring to that interchange. We have the New York skyline in the background on this puzzle, The you know, one of the bridges, and we see some water, and then we have, of course, some poor young ladies who's on the ground in front of the, you see the killer's hand with the switchblade on it. So that's puzzle number two. The third one is from Dario Gento's masterpiece, Suspiria. Now, Suspiria, of course, isn't a Jallo movie. It's, what's the term, a Jallo fantique? It's a, because uh, it's supernatural element, so that keep, takes kind of out of the Jallo realm. But this is a, a thousand, another thousand-piece puzzle. The only thing more terrifying, terrifying than the last 120 pieces are the first 880. And, and that's referring to a famous trailer for Suspiria, if you look that up. Not the remake, but the original with Je- Jennifer Harper. Or Jessica Harper? Jessica Harper in there. Um, pretty great movie. Um, and then, of course, the last puzzle is a movie you've heard me talk about before. And you can't have Jigsaw Puzzles of horror movies and not have the Jigsaw Puzzle for pieces. Which, of course, is 1,000 pieces of filth you'll be dying to know from whence they came. Um, pieces is a Spanish uh, production. And it's one of my favorite movies. It's a B-exploitation movie. But slasher movie um, pieces. I've talked about it before. I'm not going to, I won't go in depth to it. But in the beginning of the movie, a kid's putting together a jigsaw puzzle, this naked lady, and his mom walks in on him. Well, this is that jigsaw puzzle. So it, it's not one my wife's going to help me put together by any means. But I, I can't see how you could have jigsaw puzzles, horror movies, and not have, you know, the, the movie that, or the puzzle that whole movie is built around. Uh, you can find most of these movies pretty easily online pieces a couple different places uh suspiri is pretty famous i think all these are, are pretty accessible movies and i would um well i i say accessible i the new york ripper is not for the faint of heart it, it there's definitely misogyny and you know your violence towards women and and yeah new york ripper is not a an entry-level movie by any means uh, but pieces is pieces is your standard slasher movie. I think anybody can get into that. Suspiria is, is if you want to see a, a masterwork of using color and sound, Suspiria does that to to supplement the show, the movie. Suspiria is great. It's got the score by Goblin, and it does that thing where so of course the bad guys or the the villains in Suspiria are witches. And and so in, early on, she's she's in the taxi going by the forest, and you, the soundtrack has like witch witch in the background, which is something that Hans Zimmer did to a much less effect in the Amazing Spider-Man Two, when we see Electro and he's we see Electro face off against Spider-Man for the first time, Jamie Fox Electro, and and in the background you're hearing like voices, he's hearing voices in the music, you know they shot at you, they hate you, and. Yeah, it, it's done much better by Goblin in Suspiria. So, anyway, let, let me get out of that. The The other thing I've been watching recently, it kind of ties in with puzzles. Well, I guess National Puzzle Day, go do a jigsaw puzzle or something, folks. Always good for you. Keeps your brain, you, you know, nimble. Um, the, but the other thing I've been watching lately, and we'll talk about on a different episode, I guess, because I'm running long here and I have a lot to do, 
But I've been watching an Italian subgenre called Poliziotteschi, which are basically crime thrillers. And of course, I've been watching some of Franco Nero in there. And I'll pick this up another episode because I, I, I want to play sound clips, especially the soundtrack, which is amazing for Street Law, um, which is was trying to cash in on Death Wish, but it's so much better than Death Wish. Street Law deserves its own episode. So I will come back to that another time because right now we're going to get into our AD&D segment. Let's talk about Gotcha Monsters. Today, we're going to move away from the psionic gotcha monsters to talk about three other kind of gotcha monsters. And this is going to be a just a rapid fire segment today. I'm going to talk about three monsters in the C section that have gotcha qualities to them. We're going to talk about the Karen Crawler, the Catobelopus. I know I'm saying that wrong. And we're going to talk about the Centipede Giant. Let's get into it. Carrion Crawler first. Carrion Crawlers are uncommon. We encounter one to six at a time. They have armor class of three slash seven. We'll talk about that. They have a move of 12 inches, which is pretty fast. They have three plus one hit dice. There's a 50% chance you'll find them in the layer where they'll have treasure type B. The problem is they have eight attacks and they have paralysis. So, and that's actually the damage of their attacks. They don't have any special defenses, standard magic resistance, they're non-intelligent, they're neutral, they're large, they're nine feet long, and they do not have any sonic abilities. Carrion crawlers strongly resemble a cross between a giant green cutworm and a huge cephalophod. They are usually found only in subterranean areas. The carrion crawler is, as the name implies, a scavenger, but this does not preclude aggressive attacks against living creatures for that ensures a constant supply of corpses upon which to feed or for deposit of eggs. The head of the monster is well protected, but its body is only armor class 7. Carrion crawler moves quite rapidly on its multiple legs despite its bulk, and a wall or ceiling is as easily traveled as the floor, for each of the beast's feet are equipped with sharp claws that hold it fast. The head is equipped with eight tentacles, which flail at prey. Each two-foot-long tentacle excludes a gummy secretion which, when fresh, will paralyze opponents, save versus paralyzation, or takes effect. As there are as many tentacles with which to hit, as there are so many tentacles with which to hit, and thus multiple chances of being paralyzed, these monsters are greatly feared. So the problem with your carrying crawler, of course, is most adventurers start off with fairly low saving throws, meaning their saving throws are not very good, and what'll happen is with eight attacks, it can easily paralyze a whole party. And and then, of course, you you know, total party kill. Uh, which is kind of why it's a gotcha monster, because those eight attacks and that paralyzation make it a really tough opponent. Definitely something you want to run away from initially if you see it, especially if you're, say, a first, second level party. The Catablepus. Now, this is kind of a gotcha monster. It also has a a special attack. They are very rare, luckily. They appear one to three, though, which is kind of crazy. Encountering three of these things would be tough. They, they're also armor class seven. They only move six inches. They're six plus two hit dice. There's a 60% chance you'll find them in the layer where they have a treasure type C. They only have one attack. Their damage of attack is 1d6 plus stun, but they have a gaze that causes death. 
There's no special defenses, standard magic resistance. They're semi-intelligent, neutral alignment. They're also large, six feet at the shoulder, and do not have psionic abilities. The Catablepus, this nightmare creature is, a loathsome, is loathsome beyond description and has no redeeming features. Man, I bet you its mom sees redeeming features in it. Its body resembles that of a huge bloated buffalo and gives off an offensive odor. The Catablepus's neck is long and thin, and perched atop is a big head uglier than that of a warthog. Its legs are thick and stumpy, much like a hippopotamus. These, the creature's tail is strong and snaky, however, and moves with amazing swiftness to strike its enemies. Any creature so struck has a base 75% chance of being stunned for 1 to 10 melee rounds, the base chance being modified by an adjustment downward by 5% for each level, or hit die for monsters above 1. Thus, if an 11th level character is struck by the tail, there's only a 25% chance of stunning. Oh. No saving throw, just you roll, 20, roll the dice, 25 or lower, you're stunned for 1 to 10 rounds. Perhaps its habitat, fetid swamps and miasmal marshes, caused the bizarre combination of genetic characteristics in this monster. Perhaps it was due to some ghastly tinkering with life by demanding demented godling. In any case, the most hard aspect of the catablepus is its bloodshot eyes. The gaze of the catalepus is equivalent to a death ray, extending six inches from the eyes, even into the astral and ethereal planes. Any creature which meets this gaze dies without a chance to save itself. So, no saving throw. The com- complete surprise on a two, a two on a six-sided die, means one of the party encountering the monster has met its gaze. Otherwise, the very weak neck of the catalepus only has a 25% chance of raising its head high enough to use its eyes. If both parties are still, this chance increases by 15% per melee round. If the monster must follow quick movements, or if it is shambling along in pursuit of prey, there is only a 10% chance per melee round of the neck raising its head sufficiently high for its gaze. A fleeing victim, even with its eyes averted, is subject to the deadly effect of the catalepus's eyes, although there is a saving throw. So if you're facing this thing and it raises its head and, and you get caught in its gaze, you're dead, period. No save, don't pass $200, or don't pass go, don't collect $200. If you're running away and it looks at your back, then you get a saving throw for its death ray. If that's not a gotcha monster, I don't know what is. Um, so those are three non... Or, or wait... I said three. Those are only two. Let's talk about the third one. The third one isn't like a surprise that it's deadly, but it's a surprise how common it is. And that's the giant centipede, the centipede comma giant. Frequency is common, meaning they're everywhere. You go in somebody's house and there are probably giant centipedes in there. They appear two to 24. That's a bunch of them. Only armor class of nine. They move 15 inches. They move faster than you do. They have a quarter hit dice, so just one quarter of a hit die. There's 0% chance you're finding a layer. They don't have any treasure. They only have one attack. Don't do any damage, but they have poison. Special defenses, none. Magic resistance, none. Non-intelligent, neutral. They are small, a foot, or a little more than a foot in length. That's pretty damn big. Um, no psionic abilities. These nasty creatures are found nearly everywhere. They are aggressive and rush forward to bright bite their prey, injecting poison into the wound, but in many cases the poison is weak and not fatal. Add plus four to the saving throw die roll. Also, 
as the centipede is small, it is less likely to resist attacks which allow it a saving throw. Minus one on its saving throw die. Centipedes come in many colors, pale gray to black, red to brown. But so the problem is you got two to twenty-four of these things, so you got a dozen or more of these things rushing at you. Chances are you're gonna fail one of those saving throws, which is gonna be a bad day. Um, because that's gonna kill you. So, and they're common, they're everywhere. So they're gotcha monsters, not so much as in you don't expect them to do what they do, but the fact that they're everywhere. You should be encountering them like every adventure, which is crazy. Maybe not every adventure, that's overstating it a little bit. But when, when you look at the frequency of some of these monsters, it, it's kind of crazy. And especially when you think about the something like the giant centipedes. Because the common, you have a 65% chance of encountering them. So that's, you know, pretty darn good. Okay, next time we'll get back into psionic monsters. We'll talk about the cerebral parasite. But now, let's open up that mailbag. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's scream is coming from inside the house. First up is going to be Goblin's Henchman, who has the podcast and blog also called Goblin's Henchman. He, over on his podcast, has been talking a little bit about AD&D and Osric. He is currently, as the day of the recording, running an event at BSRCon, uh, online convention. I don't know if there's any in-person stuff or if it's all online. And tomorrow he's going to be doing a talk on hex crawls and hex flowers. I, it looks like registration's closed. I don't think you can actually register this weekend for it. And I don't know if they're going to have those talks available in the future. I don't know if they're going to record the seminars and have them available. I hope they are. But I wanted to play Mr. Henchman's call here. He was talking about a play test he did with Carapace, his adventure that uses the hex flower. And he used Osric as opposed to AD&D first edition. And he was kind of surprised at some of the differences. And he recently did a podcast talking about that, which is linked in the show notes, go to the show notes and you'll see what I'm talking about. But I called in to talk to him about initiative because there is indeed differences in initiative between Advanced Dungeons Dragons 1st Edition and Osric. So I called to let him know that, and that's what he's responding to me about. I guess I should say really quickly, when we're talking about Osric, we're talking about the old-school reference and index compilation, which is basically a retroclone of 1st Edition AD&D. There are changes to it. It is one of the earliest of the retroclones. It goes way back to like 2007, 2008. Something like that, maybe earlier, a little bit earlier than that. Originally 2006, I'm sorry. The, the, it was actually originally released in 2006. And it was kind of the brainchild of people over at the Knights and Knave Alehouse Forum. And it was designed to let people produce first edition AD&D compatible products. It wasn't so much made as a rule set to play from. But anyway, that's what Osric is, and so that's what he's talking about in his episodes at all. But with all that history lesson out of the way, I am going to play his calls right now. Hi, Jason. Just a quick message to say thank you for your message about Osric and AD&D. 
Uh, I can't remember if I said thank you. But um, either way, that's a very helpful comment. So I just basically tacked it. As soon as I got it, I tacked it on the end of my episode because we basically closed up. <laughs> actually dealt with it. So that was good. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. And just uh, I couldn't remember if I said thanks for coming back with that so quickly. So, yeah, cheers. All right, well, I got my, my con game coming up um, tonight, actually, and my X-Fire talk tomorrow. So, um, yeah, it's a shame you, you couldn't join in the, that carapace session, but, uh, you know, scheduling is the, the ultimate bugbear display with these things. So, um, yeah, no, obviously no problem. You're doing me a favour, so... And uh, hopefully no more digital voices from you. <laughs> All right, bye. Hey, Jason, thanks for the recap of Reavers. Now I don't have to do one. I like that you remember a lot more things. I need to write things down, I think, more. Um, no fault or slide on Joe, but I don't know. I don't know. I think I can remember it, and I usually can't. But um, I loved it that we didn't have any combat or didn't even do any rolling, but it was more like mutual world building. And I think, like Joe said, that really helped him to kind of codify in his mind how things work and we had questions um not just in character with that cool scene with the the uh seer but uh, also questions about if he's going to keep this in his world or what is what does this mean in his world um so yeah and i really like that we kind of came together and now have a decision on what what to do and why we're doing it of course, that was Carl Rodriguez, the Gemologist Presents podcast. And Carl, I can't take all the credit for note-taking there because the other gentleman that plays with us, who plays Laszlo, he has taken up to putting the notes into Trello as we're playing the game. During the game, he's typing notes into Trello. So if you go to the game's Trello page, you'll see that he has encapsulated each of the sessions, all the notes are there, and he does it as we go. So I have been kind of leaning on him. Of course, all the mistakes are mine alone, but I've been leaning on his notes as opposed to taking my own. So pro tip, if somebody else does the work, don't worry about recreating it. But, you know, I got another call about Reaver from Joe Salvador himself. Hey, Jason, it's Joe. Once again, calling in to to thank you for your most recent recap of our Reaver game. Uh, once again, a, a great session uh, with you guys. Um, really some, some great role-playing from, from you and the other fellows. Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of weird, honestly. Uh, like we didn't, I don't think we rolled any dice at all that I recall. Um, just role-playing stuff and world-building and kind of like uh, exploring uh, that area, I guess, a little bit. Um, yeah, kind of dark. Uh, much inspired by the historical world and, you know, the things that happened therein. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're going to see what happens. Uh, we're going to go to the Valley of the Mists, I guess, and um, get into trouble. Uh, I'm going to call you back later. And an extra special thanks for your really kind words, dude. I greatly appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm happy that, that you guys are, are all enjoying the game and, and sticking around for you know, to come back every other week and, and, and see what you guys get into. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it, dude. And, and everything that you do here on the, on the side too, with the recaps and everything, uh, you and Carl both do a great job and, and, you know, I just, I just appreciate your support. I appreciate you guys playing the game, man. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah, thanks, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and then, uh, let's see, you asked a question about AD&D, AD &D, and all i got to say is, I never heard of Rank, and whether we didn't know about it or just ignored it, I, I can't even say. I have to go look it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, man, I'll talk to you later, man. Looking forward to the next session. See ya. Hey, Joe, thank you for those kind words. So you're not the only one that's going to call into this episode that's not really sure about the rating or the ranking. Colin Green was also a little fat flabbergasted by this. It's page 86 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Now, Daniel Norton is also going to call in, and he is familiar with it, and he's going to talk a little bit about it. But I'm not going to go into depth myself this episode. I'm going to leave it with just the comments you callers give. And so if you want to look this up or if other people want to look it up, it's page 86 of the DMG. You can do that. And then I will actually weigh in on the whole performance rating for adventures in a later episode. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in. Um, I had to wait till the whole episode was done this time because I was somewhere I couldn't call in. So <laughs> we'll see if I can be efficient. Uh, sounds like you had some amazing games and uh, Joe's uh, intro sounded really cool. It actually reminded me a little bit of the beginning of Harmon Quest. I wonder if Harmon Quest got that because they were playing Pathfinder. Playing might be too strong a word. <laughs> so I wonder if they got inspired by that with the big festival. Or maybe that's just a common trope, I guess, anyways, about uh, big festivals and parties and stuff to start a campaign. Very good way to do it. Sounds like both games were amazing. Both Joes sound like great game masters. It's always good to play with good people. I don't know if I agree that talking in person all the time makes the game better. Um, but, you know, hey, if you like that and the GM likes that and everybody likes that, then that's cool. Uh, I mean, I mix it up a little bit, but I don't feel like it's necessary – I think sometimes the game can be run much more efficiently when you take things out of uh, in-person, but, you know, maybe efficiency isn't the key. Hey, Daniel, thank you for that call, and I think that's a good comment. I don't think you have to talk in first person every second of a game, but I do think it helps with immersion to some degree. And, and it's going to vary group to group, too. But if everybody in the group does it, I, I think it does add a little something. But, yeah, I, I tend to default to telling you what a character said instead of talking in that character as first person myself. And, and I don't think you have to do it. I don't think you're a bad game master or anything if you don't, or a bad player even if you don't. I, I don't think it's talking first person is a requirement of RPGs by any shape or, or form. But, it, you know, playing in games where we are doing it, it does offer a little bit different feel than where people are a little more removed from it. So I, I, I think there is something to it, but I definitely don't think it's a, a, a hard requirement to play the game. Uh, you know, I, I hope that when you're playing uh, in games that, um, at least this is in my experience and it's been positive, is that if a character dies, I, I know that it, it can be like, oh man, that character died. But sometimes it is kind of humorous how a character, whether it be an NPC or or uh, play a character or an enemy dies and I don't know humorous but I do I do love giant insects and giant spiders so um, I'm with NW the MW there so yeah definitely <laughs> something great about being eaten by a giant spider just just so good so yeah I, I don't think that that's adversarial to 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 uh to enjoy the the scene or or that everybody's building together even if it means that the player character failed or or died or something but uh I don't know perhaps I am adversarial <laughs> maybe you know, you bring up kind of an interesting point when you're talking about the Pathfinder world and studying up on it and everything. And I think that's cool, but I, I think one of the, I don't want to say problems, but I can't think of another word. 
with um, playing, I guess, unless you're playing a lot or in a very closed group or whatever, is that if you are playing in some kind of a, a, a system where it's got like a fixed world, it can be difficult as a player coming into it. Like, I don't want to, that's one reason why I never run anything when I was running 5e in the Forgotten Realms. I don't want to know that lore. I don't care about that lore. I care about what happens at my table. So I don't know. For me, I generally don't like to run systems that have a lot of back lore. That being said, I ran Coriolis and that was really fun and that has a lot of back lore. I like that Hyperborea kind of uh, puts little bits and pieces of lore into it, but not so much that it actually really affects anything. You could run the game 100% from scratch. That's kind of the kind of lore that I appreciate. I don't know what Pathfinder's lore is like, so I'm not uh, saying it's like Forgotten Realms, but I'm not a big fan of Forgotten Realms for that reason. Yeah, for the record, I'm not a big fan of really deep world lore either, but that's more because I'm lazy. Unless it's a world where I'm really interested and want to read it. If it's a world that I'm not that interested in, I, I definitely don't want to have to do a lot of homework. But I should clarify, if I didn't make this clear, that Joe and that Pathfinder group has not at all made it a requirement for me to learn any of that lore. And I think I'll be able to play this adventure path just fine without really knowing any of the backstory. So I don't really think it's a barrier as we perceive it to be. I, I know we look at these things and think, oh, I can never play RuneQuest because of all the grant the lore. But you know what? If you find a group that's willing to accept you and you say, hey, I don't know anything about it, and they say, that's okay, come anyway, then you should go anyway and you should play the game. Because a lot of these games, you really don't need to know the lore to enjoy the game. Carl's made that point. Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents, likes lore-heavy worlds, but he's often said that you don't have to learn the lore to play in his worlds. So I I think maybe that's a self-imposed thing we do what our, do to ourselves. Oh, look at all that lore. I can never learn all that, when in reality, we don't have to learn all that. As far as the conversation on reading and uh, training and stuff, uh, yes, we used training when, when I was a kid playing AD&D. I don't really play now at all, um, well, except for in your game. And we did use the ratings, but I feel like we just always rated ourselves very high because, um, you know, we were kids and we were friends and we wanted to level up. So I don't think it was really an issue. Um, what I will say is that um, I like the idea that, that uh, MW put out there that – and I'd have to reread the section to see if this is even the way it's written. Not that that matters uh, too much, but um, I do like the idea of it being more collaborative. And I think that if you were somebody who let a player play four or five sessions and then they went to go level up and you were like, oh, no, you played terribly, I think that's a, a problem as a DM. You know, you, you, if you felt like the person wasn't playing the role that they had selected in a way that you thought was appropriate, and even that sounds a little bit off, right? Like you found appropriate as a DM. I, I kind of, again, I always feel like it's the table. So like if it's the way that, Either, unless you have some little kind of lore written down, you know, how the table thinks of what a thief, right? Because generally, if you're playing with, um, I pick a thief because that's what I always played. Uh, you know, if you're playing with a group of people uh, that are your friends and you're playing a lot, uh, you know, I think there's some kind of, uh, you're, it's implied maybe in, in my uh, response here that you have similar, you know, uh, inspirations, right? So like, the kids I grew up with, if, if you were to play a Cavalier, they would all play the Cavalier the same because we all think, you know, you know, uh, Lancelot or whatever, right? So I think that's kind of uh, where I'm getting at there. So I don't think that it's really an issue, but I do think if you were in a new group and that you were playing your thief uh, differently than, let's say, the world seems to want them to be played, 
then I think the DM has it's it's on the DM to right away first session that happens to say, hey, you realize that like you know you're a magic user and magic users really shouldn't just be running up forward into battle. Um, it doesn't matter if you have a high strength. Uh, you need to be using your spells more and your intelligence because that's what magic users do. Otherwise, you're not going to progress quickly as a magic user and your training is going to take longer. And you can just tell them that up front, you know, and if they're like, well, I want to fight, then maybe give them an option to switch up what they're doing. That's kind of how I look at that. I think just dumping somebody on uh, something on somebody is wrong. And I also think that the person responding on Dragon's Foot, you know, that's that kind of response you get online, right? Where it's like, the, because you're using ratings, it's automatically assumed that you're using them to be a dick and to give a bad rating and not exactly the opposite and say, hey, guys, you played fantastic. Your training is going to be, you know, the lowest it can be or, or whatever it might be. So I will address this in a future episode, as I mentioned after Joe Salvador's call, but I don't disagree with you. I think this is an ongoing conversation. If you are going to prescribe how you think people should play certain classes, and some classes are more important to do this than others, your classes with alignment requirements, things like that, then I think it needs, needs to be an ongoing discussion, not a once every two month discussion when you get enough experience to level up. So and now if you have that discuss if you have somebody playing a paladin, well, I mean then they just lose their paladinship. But if if for whatever reason somebody's not playing it and and you don't like the way they're not playing it, then and everybody else doesn't like the way they're not playing it if you're doing the collaborative thing, I guess. And you mention it to them every session and they keep doing it. Well, that's when you slap them with that rating if you're using that system. But again, I'll, I'll address this in a future episode. And I'm going to actually go I – I may call in again. I don't know. I'm going to go and read it later. I'm not home, so I can't look at my damn sheet. But I will read it to get a little bit of a grasp on it. But I think that the long and short of it is as an adult playing the way that I do now in groups that don't play long campaigns or play short things, I'm not so sure that I would use the ratings. Um, I don't think that – I don't like the idea unless it's a collaborative thing. I don't like the idea of a DM deciding if I'm playing correctly. That's exactly the reason why I don't like mechanics in, like, let's say, in fifth edition, like inspiration. I don't like the idea of the DM saying, oh, I like the way you're playing a bard, but not the way they're playing a bard. Because I think there's a lot of different ways to play a bard. And, you know, to have one set way, that just doesn't seem as fun for me. And honestly, it sounds, it seems counter to the idea of OD&D, which is so open world and so do what you want. So, I mean, it's, I'm sorry to say it, but I feel like, I may have misnumbered that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say, but I'm, I'm really starting to feel like the more I look at AD&D that I don't think I would ever really want to play rules as written, ever. At least not that kind of stuff, because I think that you need to sit down with your group. And when I say rules as written, I mean all the grab bag that is the DMG, because I'm still not convinced that you need to play with everything in the DMG, that that is, in fact, quote, rules as written. I look at uh, look at D&D as it says right at the very beginning, you take what, what you want. So rules as written means that you don't take a rule that's there. And change it like, oh no! Now uh, you know everybody gets two attacks per round instead of one. That would be a house rule. Not using something is not uh, going against rules as written, in my opinion. In a game like AD and D, that's meant to be put together in a modular fashion. At least that's my feeling on it. I don't buy the argument. I think I've said this before that AD and D was for tournaments, and that's why it's so strict. Because who's doing training in tournaments? Yeah, Daniel. I don't know. I I don't know that. The rules are supposed to be optional or a, a pick and choose what you want. That's an interesting question. I think the intent there is that you're supposed to use them all. But obviously, it's your, your table at home. 
But I do think that's something you discuss with the group before the game starts. I, I think that's a discussion that the DM and the players have to have before the game starts. Hey, I'm using the rating system, or hey, I'm not going to use the rating system. We're going to be using weapon speed, or we're not going to be using weapon speed. These are discussions that you should have before the game starts, not after the game starts and the DM just drops them in your lap. Oh, by the way, we're not doing that. You, you know, those are the kind of things that you need to talk about in you know your quote unquote session zero. Next caller up is Colin Green of Spike Pit Podcast and YouTube channel. Take it away, Colin. Mr. Connolly, how you doing? Weighing in on the conversation regarding adversarial DMs. As far as I'm concerned, this is a personality thing. It has got zero, absolute zero to do with what addition or game or anything else you're playing if you are of an adversarial nature then you are going to run an adversarial game if you are not however of an adversarial nature then you're not going to run an adversarial game what has it got to do with game or addition i fail to understand um maybe I'm some kind of naive idiot, but I suspect not. Good stuff, mate. Take care. I'll catch you later. Hey, Colin. Thank you so much for that call. And I tend to agree with you. I think even if the rule maybe reads to some people adversarially, doesn't mean you have to play it that way. I think the relationship the players and the DM have together really is a matter of the players and the DM. And like you say, it's really going to be a personality thing, not anything else. Now, there are going to be people who say, oh, no, the the rules say this and that, and, and the way the rules read are adversarial. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean you have to play them that way, and you could look at it that way, but you don't have to. So let me give you an example of something people in the, an actual rule or actual wording in the book that people might consider adversarial. So let's pick, say, Cursed Scrolls. This is page 121 of the DMG. It is incumbent upon the Dungeon Master to do his utmost to convince players that a Cursed Scroll should be read. This is to be accomplished through duplicity, coercion, and threat, etc. I.e., any scroll not read has a chance of fading into normal air. But this can be noted by the archaic wording if read in the still dungeon atmosphere. The curse takes effect immediately. Suggests the curses are reader polymorphed into a monster of equal level which attacks any creatures nearby. Reader turned into liquid and drains away. Reader and all within 20 foot radius transported 200 to 100 or 1200 miles in a random direction. Reader and all in 20 foot radius transported to another planet, plane, or continuum. Disease fatal to reader in two to eight turns unless cured. Explosive runes. Magic item nearby is demagicked. Random rolled spell affects reader at 12th level of magic use. I should note also that it's kind of hard to tell if a scroll's cursed initially. So there are people, like our mutual friend Joe Richter, who would say that he would hold that wording up as an example of adversarial play and, and why Gary Gygax hates everybody. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think 
you and your players can enjoy playing that. But, you know, words is written on the page. The idea that you coerce and trick them and threaten them into reading that scroll, that cursed scroll, it, it, it does sound a little bit, um, a little bit adversarial. But I, I don't necessarily think that is the problem when we talk about adversarial play. I think when we talk about adversarial play is when the GM is being a dick and is actively trying to kill your character and is is playing favorites at the table and things like that. And that definitely, like you say, is a personality problem, not a rules problem. Hi, Jace. So apparently it would seem that calling in when you haven't listened to a whole show is somehow doing a Daniel. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is some BS. I feel like <laughs> long before Mr. Norton was calling in on the anchors, that that was a thing. Anyway, putting that aside, as for AD&D, back in the day, in the 80s, I played it, and this whole business of ratings, I've got to tell you, man, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um we played some janky, mixed-up version of AD&D 1E, D&D Basic, um, Holmes, Mensa Art. It was just a mashup, And, yeah, you lost me. Ratings, what? Take care. Catch you later. Now, I teased you with a special announcement by Colin, and I'm going to tease you a little bit longer because I'm going to play that message at the very end of the show. Sorry, folks, I know that's a little bit mean of me, but next up, we have a new caller. Jamie is somebody I played games with before. I really had a lot of fun in that game, and actually, it's interesting because the One Ring game that Jamie and I both played in was run by Arlen Walker, who he's calling in reference to. So last episode was a bonus episode. I played a bunch of calls from Arlen Walker about second edition AD&D. I never play, I never had second edition the day. I still don't own any of the books. I can't talk about second edition. So Jamie is called in to answer Arlen's questions. And then after Jamie's set of calls, we're going to hear somebody else doing the same thing. And that somebody is Barry of the Shadow of the GM podcast. But first off, we're going to hear our new caller, Jamie. Hello, Jason. This is Jamie. Um, there are some who call me Crumb. Anyway, you and I played together in a One Ring Second Edition group for a little while last year, and I've been listening to the RPG Nerds Variety Cast since then. Really enjoy your content, man. Anyways, I wanted to call in today for the first time in defense of Second Edition AD&D, which our good friend Arlen called into your show about recently and had some great points and criticisms about the system. Since I realize you're not a two-y guy, I'll try to go quick. Uh, first, I concede the helmet flaws it seems like it's almost been intentionally overlooked in second edition. They didn't do a good job of providing helmet options and benefits. Huge opportunity to add flavor and detail. Similar, I think he makes some great points about the restrictiveness of encumbrance being based on strength. Uh, however, I don't know that Constitution would be a better solution there. Hey, Jamie. Yeah, I can see strength being deadlift and Constitution being endurance when you're doing that long ruck march, you're doing that long you know, hiking trip carrying 120 pounds and that, you know, those mortar rounds and extra belt or two machine gun ammo and your two, two, two quarts of water and all that stuff. I, I can see where 
Constitution would matter with that. But ultimately, it's a game, and I, I don't know that the complexity may, is worth it to do all that. But let me turn it back over to, to Jamie here. One of Arlen's main points at the beginning was about the presentation in the player's handbook. Uh, the armor AC benefits are on a different page from their cost and weight information. Um, I think, you know, would it be better to have them all together? Sure. Um, however, you know, they tell you the page number right there. So they tell you exactly where to go. It's a couple pages later and they don't leave you hanging. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, but instead of also, you know, a player deciding on their armor purchase based on its AC benefit, I think most players would, you know, be making that decision based on the character's appearance and what they want to, what they can wear based on their strength and then what they can afford. Um, the a the armor class chart is nearly identical to first edition. It's pretty easy to memorize once you've looked at it a couple of times. It's only a few options. And then I think, you know, armor cost based on AC, I think the fact that there's armor that costs more than another kind and provides less AC benefit is not unrealistic. So the price of items is not intended to correlate with their protective benefit. I think it's rather that it's uh, more relative to its difficulty to craft and the resources it takes to craft and then its overall rarity. Um, he took particular exception to bronze plate. When you're making a new character, you get 20 to 200 gold depending on your role. So there's no starting player who can even afford bronze plate. Um, but the Arms and Equipment Guide for 2E provides a lot more detail about why bronze plate is the way it is. Um, and, you know, they explain that it's more of a ceremonial armor and that it's in places where copper and tin are very common. Uh, bronze plate offers better protection than brigandine or chainmail and a lower price than standard plate. It has some unique benefit. And this armor is one piece of equipment whose price is not determined by its true value in combat, but by its perceived value to the persons around the wearer. The Arms and Equipment Guide goes on to say that, you know, more than a few low-level adventurers with perhaps a little too much gold to spend and not enough experience or training in such matters often are cheated into buying bronze plate that's been painted silver. I love the color of that. That's a great, you know, uh, part of the game that you could, you could play into. Um, there are versions of bronze plate used by cultures also who, for one reason or another, haven't learned the fine art of forging iron or steel, and that's another reason it exists it goes on too to say that some tribes have tribes have literally won entire battles on the distracting beauty of their exquisite armor alone. So you know, for those reasons, I think bronze plate has a place in the game. It does stick out. It does look a little different, but it certainly you know they do a good job explaining it in the arms and equipment guide. So those are the points I wanted to call in on. Thanks so much for taking my calls, Jason, and keep on keeping on, man. Jamie, thank you so much for those calls. You bring up some great points there. And please call back anytime. Now, Jamie, our first time caller, wasn't the only one to call about this. We also received some calls from Barry, the Shadow of the GM podcast. So I'm going to turn it over to him. And if you listen to my podcast sped up, you might want to turn it back to normal speed. Hi, Jason. It's Barry here. I know you suggested calling into Arlen's podcast, but I'm going to call into your one anyway because don't just cop out and avoid it because you've started the debate on your podcast kidding aside um a little bit about chewy and the organization around the armor chart first of all um arlen's not wrong it is a bit silly the way it's laid out in second edition i think if you've played through the editions and i i mean i did second through to third so on and so forth up to fifth and 
when we went back from third edition back to second edition, we agreed the book isn't laid out brilliantly by comparison. Having now tried to play some first edition, I can say it's a massive improvement on 1E. I think if you started with 1E, moved to 2E, 2E is definitely a massive improvement in layout than 1E. But I think by the time they got to third edition, whether you're like, what's your not, the layout was worlds of magnitude better in finding things like charts, as you mentioned, tables were all combined. So you could just find stuff by looking at the one table, which definitely works a lot better. So I think there's something to be said about it being a product of its time and an improvement on what it was, but not necessarily what it could have been. To talk about the bronze plate, I think you hit the nail on the head yourself, Jason, when you talked about it. The If you read the second edition player's handbook uh, on its own, regardless of the, the historical reference books, there was very much uh, an attempt by it to say that you could change the tech level of your games. It talked a lot about playing in different tech levels, and I think absolutely the bronze plate is meant to reflect Bronze Age armor, so you sort of Greek level or Bronze Age in other areas, and the idea that you wouldn't have chainmail, say, in bronze potentially, and so therefore it's expensive because it would have been hard to make with bronze and use in that time, it would have been expensive and the sort of cream of the crop. I think that's the idea. I mean, I didn't design the game, I don't know, but that seems to fit in with that and fits in with it. BS, it doesn't make sense. I think he's right that some of the armor values don't always make sense, some of the other ones as well. It's, you know, there was issues around it not being a linear scale. I think they tried to make the, the values some sort of historically reflecting rather than matching the game. So yeah, there was some inconsistencies. When you look at the armor sort of pricing and things from that point of view but i think there's some sort of rationale behind it when they did it and i guess the last thing i mean this is the encumbrance rules a bit annoying around it yeah they are i mean there are as i said there's lots of optional rules around encumbrance that you can use and if you're using the full advanced to complicated armor things it does become a bit of a pain having it and yes it does mean that some of your slow members of the party do slow the whole party down and I suspect that's why a lot of the time a lot of players hand waved the encumbrance, not completely, but they did definitely house rule it to some degree. I think there was a lot of giving people portable holes quite early on in their careers and stuff as well, so you didn't have to worry as much about encumbrance. I did encounter that a fair amount of time. I think people did. And I think, again, the encumbrance kind of reflects the, the thing at the time that was kind of expected those things were going to happen. I think these days, the way we play, we don't like the encumbrance rules as much, and also some of the ammo tracking rules and things, so... I think, again, it's a bit of a product of its time, but back then that was kind of just seen as the way things were, whereas these days we look back at it and we don't tend to like those rules, but when we played it, it certainly wasn't. It was an issue, but it was a big an issue, I don't think. So I think guessing to sum up in reply to what Ireland said, he's not entirely wrong with what he said. In fact, he's mostly right with all the things he said, but I think there was some contextual stuff behind it. I think when you look back at more modern games and even modern redesigns of OSR games, etc., and look back at it, then it is poorly designed, poorly, not poorly designed, it's poorly thought out, poorly sort of planned, not always laid out the best way, and some of the stuff doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think if you look at it in the context of how it came to be and what it was trying to do, some of it does make a little bit more sense and it is an attempt to try and, you know, make it a bit more organised in first edition, but not maybe succeeding as well as later editions did and like i said some of the encumbrance stuff and some of the pricing stuff makes more sense if you take in context of they were trying to bring in different tech levels and trying to appeal to some of those gamers who like the nitty-gritty of encumbrance and the idea that people are weighed down and they can't carry very much and how you trade that stuff off hopefully that makes some kind of sense anyway i'll speak to you all later barry thank you for those calls i do think that makes sense i think we do need to look at these games in the era they were written and with some of the things in mind of when they were written Nobody's. I, I don't know that it's how useful it is to compare games of yesteryear with modern games. There are you know, good things about modern games, there are nostalgic things, and there are actual good things in the older games as well. So I, I, but I don't know, when you talk about layout and things like that, can you compare them head to head? Maybe. You know, everybody says OSC is so much better laid out than BX, but... When you look at the page count and you look at the things that really matter and really stick in your head like the art, well, BX still wins. 
So there you go. There's a hot take for you. Let's move on to that last call from Colin that you've been waiting for. So, Jace, listening to you chatting with Carl and the back and forth regarding Cobra Kai, interesting little side note. The uh, My father-in-law and the theme tune that I use, it's uh, typical of the kind of stuff that he's doing and it's been suggested that it would be a good fit for Cobra Kai. So, fingers crossed, who knows it could crop up in a future series and productions of that show. I don't know, it's a long shot, but it is between you, me, and everybody else now on the internet. That could be a thing. Super exciting. Colin, thank you for sharing that. That is super exciting. I will watch for that. Who knows, maybe it's season five or season six, right? That, that's really exciting, definitely. So thank you so much for those calls. Thank you to all my callers, especially my new caller, Jamie. I want to thank Ray Otis, who does the Coffee Cup Clip Art. Even though I didn't use it this episode, I used a promo image when the Pieces Puzzle was came out for Messed Up Puzzles. A link to them is in the show notes if you want to buy your own Messed Up Puzzles. Um, I want to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and putting up with my nonsense. If you want to take part in the show, you have comments on anything that was said today or any other episode or about anything in general, you can leave a message on Anchor. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach an audio file to that Gmail, I will play it on the air and make you famous. You can also reach out to me on a variety of different discords. I will be back next week and we'll no doubt have more calls. We'll talk about 1974 Street Law with Franco Nero. Great, great movie. We'll do talk more about AD&D. We'll do more game recaps. We'll do all kinds of fun stuff. So I'll talk to you guys next time. Take care. Joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. Sure is a dustman in your moil's body tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck